You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast. My name's Andrew Mackay-Smith, and this is my conversation with the senior music editor from The Rolling Stone, Mr. Hank Stiemer. I was inspired to reach out to Hank because I think his writing is excellent. He penned an excellent op-ed on the Morbid Angel album Covenant, so that's the reason that I was inspired to reach out to him, but he also has a solid grasp of jazz, which I also dearly love. So let's cut to the conversation with Mr. Hank Stiemer. Here we go. Hello. Hey, mate. How are you going? How's it going? Good. Can you see me? No, you can't see me. Let me see if I, I can fix this. I can't see, but I can. Oh, there you go. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm outside at the moment, so if it's a bit noisy, apologies for that. I think I'm doing about the most Queensland thing you can do, which is uh, I've got a pool beside me here because I've got a, a unit over here on the Sunshine Coast, and it's a beach one block over, so I live in the equivalent of Florida. Oh, cool. Looks looks pretty nice there. Yeah, it's not too bad. Although I've been to New York a couple of times, and I've got to tell you, I love oh, yeah. it over there. Very cool. Yeah, no, yeah, it's an awesome city for sure. Yeah, mate. Thanks very much for agreeing to a chat. You know, I've um, I've only recently come across your work in the last week or so. Okay. And what impressed me most, and is the reason for me wanting to reach out to you, is that I don't think I've seen a journalist go into as much detail in equal measures in extreme metal and jazz. And okay. In yeah. that in that manner you actually mirror my own musical taste because people think I'm weird. I don't know how else to describe it. I could use all sort of other epithets, but I'm sure you can empathise. Yeah. But, I mean, for example, just on the weekend, a good friend of mine gave me A Love Supreme by... Uh-huh. Yeah, okay, so you know who that's by. And sure. at the same, in the same conversation, we were talking about whether or not Elude Divinum Insanus, and, of course, you know who that's by as well, I, I whether, or not, whether or not that's a decent album or not. Now, I stand firmly in the category of it's a very good album and people just don't understand it. I think in the year, as the years go on, people will understand uh-huh. it. Uh-huh. But just to... That's, a, that's a fascinating... We should, we should come back to that. Let's do that. Let's do that. But, look, I, I just... So to commence, mate, I just want to compliment you on your excellent writing because I... I'm on the precipice of going to university to obtain, hopefully, a degree if I can get through the bloody thing. Right. Um, I've spent about a bit over a decade as a telecommunications account executive selling uh-huh. telecommunications to large corporations, utility companies and the like, and I just woke up one day literally and, well, I wouldn't say literally, it wasn't like an overnight thing, but I was done. I couldn't do it anymore. I just was tired yeah. of corporate life. But yeah. But uh, God, it's a long way to, a very long opening statement, very long way to make a, uh, give you a, a question. But, uh, mate, I just want to know, mate, what inspires you to get into equal measures jazz as well as heavy metal? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to go into that. I'm going to close the window really quick so I can, so, like, the noise isn't going to disturb us. Just one second. No worries. Yeah. Yeah, so the, the jazz metal thing, um, I guess, uh, let's see. Um, so the metal stuff definitely came first. I would say, like by far, um, when I was growing up, um, you know, I'm sort of like a child of the eighties, um, and definitely like, uh, sort of hair metal or glam metal was one of the first things I got into. Um, I think like Def Leppard was one of the first bands that I remember like really, uh, latching onto as, you know, for my own, you know, enjoyment and, you know, uh, just kind of like, I remember buying the tape of hysteria and that was sort of like a big thing. And then it sort of progressed on through like, all that stuff, Guns N' Roses, Skid Row, you know, I mean, it was, it was really like, it was interesting and, and it's strange now, but you know, now, like you would turn on MTV and every day they'd have this countdown and literally it was, it was hard rock and glam metal every day. You know, that was all, that was the most popular music seemingly in the world. 
yep. it was like Joe because roses, whatever. And then, so you know, as I sort of, I, as I sort of got older, I think at some point, I can't remember how I found. I think somebody played me Metallica, and uh, it must, it was right around the Black Album came out. I think it might have even just been Inner Sandman, or remember maybe like on the bus to some trip, like class trip kind of thing. Somebody yep. played me Inner Sandman, and, and the Metallica thing was very instantly like, okay, this is the next place I have to go. Um, and, you know, became, you know, fanatical about Metallica. I think I went like backwards through the albums. I definitely remember getting Yeah, I did the same. Yeah, right. So it was like Black Album, Justice, you know, and so on. And, you know, I think once it hit Metallica, it was kind of a thing of like, all right, I've got to like, I was enjoying that progression of like, let's keep finding the next most extreme thing. Do you know what I mean? Like it was always like, what can we, how can we take this one step yeah, further? I just like Megadeth, Megadeth was in the mix. And, and it's funny because of, you know, Vinnie Paul passing away. Pantera was, I mean, not funny. It's actually, you know, sad, but it, it, I've been listening to Pantera the past couple of days because of that. Um, but Pantera was definitely, I remember them being like another step, you know, finding, uh, I think a friend of mine got vulgar display of power. And again, that was the same thing. It was like, glam to Metallica, that's an obvious, like, just, I was like, okay, this is another step. Pantera felt like another step, too. It was just like, again, like, you're, you're kind of like, whoa, I've got to, like, reorient myself here because this is just way more Probably, intense. Yeah. Um, I definitely remember having, hearing Far Beyond Driven. I remember being into them and Voters Play Power and knowing that Far Beyond Driven was going to come out and hearing that album right when it came out and just kind of being, like, you know, incredibly excited. And again, like the hair metal stuff, it was it was amazing because that music was extremely popular then. You know what I mean? Like like that album was the number one record, yes. um, and you know nothing like that's really ever going to happen again. Um, but then from from that, you know, the, then I was also into a lot of punk and hardcore and things like that. And and, and but definitely Morbid Angel was like the next th time that sort of thing happened. You know what I mean? It was the next like step. I saw that, you know, Headbangers Ball on MTV was a huge uh, source of all this stuff. I, okay. I would watch it. I watched it every week or taped it, and I was just kind of like, you know, that was my Bible. for You know, and then a few magazines, Metal Maniacs Magazine, which was really I remember great. that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Rip Magazine was really good. There were a bunch of, like, zines and stuff like that. I'm, I'm from Kansas City, um, uh, suburb of Kansas City, Missouri. Um, we had a lot of cool local zines. Um and, you know, I know, like, Danzig was in the mix, too. That was a big one. Um, but Morbid Angel, when I, I remember seeing that, like, Rapture on Headbangers Ball, and it was just like, you know, I, I was like, this you got to be kidding me. Like, I couldn't even believe that there was music that was that, uh, you know. I, I just never even thought of anything like that, that there would be something so intense and just kind of yeah. so, I, I, I don't know. I think I think with each of those steps, like, Metallica, you know, if you if you get into and Justice for All, you couldn't you couldn't think it would go further than that. Pantera, you couldn't think. Of, I mean, and again, this is not like a value judgment. I'm not saying one of these bands is better than the other, but I'm saying that I think especially when you're younger, you're looking for the next thing. Do you know what I mean? I understand and completely. Yeah. And, and and Morbid Angel was like, you know, uh, it, it just fit perfectly, I guess, for what I was looking for at the time, and you know. Um, I was, you know, just starting to play music myself around that time, playing drums. I, you know, I, I, I was definitely learning simpler stuff. I wasn't playing like double kick drum at that time. 
but you know, just just the power and the speed and kind of the you know. Also, honestly, the thing that doesn't get mentioned a lot with with artists like that is the catchiness. I think that you know, a, a record like Covenant. I mean, every song is catchy. You know, the same way the, Metall the Metallica's Black album is catchy. It's sort of like I feel like Covenant is kind of like the Black album of death metal in some ways. Is that like they took the style that before then was much more just about like you know, speed and, and, and just kind of like raw intensity. And they, they, you know, I think Morbid Angel in some ways were the first great songwriters of death metal. Um, great. You know, I, just, yeah. I, I think maybe, you know, people, people could have different opinions about that, but I think bands like Cannibal Corpse and Obituary, they're more like the overall vibe. They're great bands, but you know, I can't, I, I can't like sing every song in my head the way I could with I mean, Morbid Angel, the first four albums, there's not like a track on those albums that I can't immediately tell you how it goes. You know what I mean? They, they started to get, when, when David Vincent left the band, the band was less uh, focused. I think the songwriting, they, they started to move more towards a, just raw intensity and kind of chaotic vibe, which is great. And I like those records they made without David Vincent. But I think that um, what I really loved about Morbid Angel was, was most summed up by those first four records, you know, um, yeah. Alters Through the Station. But yeah, so 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 you know, basically my entire kind of childhood adolescence was was all about this you know this metal stuff. I sort of then kind of veered over into some of the more indie stuff and got into like the very like heavy wing of I guess you could say indie rock or post hardcore. There, in particular, there was a band called Craw C R A W from Cleveland that I completely freaked out about and basically became like my favorite band. They were very kind of mathy and progressive, okay. kind of coming out of there was a metallic element to it, but it was also a lot of this kind of like, there was a lot of like heavy post hardcore indie rock stuff. It was like as heavy as metal, but it wasn't presenting itself in a metallic way. And so I got into a lot of that stuff as well. And a lot of that stuff was stuff I was more able to go see like DIY shows around where I was uh, living. But again, I, I also did end up getting to see like, you know, Danzig, Pantera, uh, Megadeth, um, you know, tons of these bands would come through in Kansas City. But so, yeah, so my whole, like, you know, the, the, the earlier part of my life was, you know, it was, it was all about this metal stuff. And I, I think that somebody, you know, jazz was kind of, like, on the radar. I had a friend who took jazz guitar lessons, who was a guy that I played music with, who also played, like, hardcore punk and metal. But he was, like, a fairly trained guitar. I had some few friends who were, like, trained musicians. And one of them was a guitar player who took, like, jazz and blues guitar lessons and there was in his family was in jazz there was some jazz around his house i remember um you know and people kind of i, I think just you know out of curiosity uh, i might have been exposed to some of your kind of basic jazz stuff maybe some Thelonious Monk, maybe some miles davis yeah nothing really, I, I i didn't i didn't dislike it but it didn't really like i wasn't like really moving gravitating towards it and i i, I think that i was in a I honestly remember being in like a dentist's office or something like that and reading like one of those, it was just like a people magazine or something. And I think there was a list of, it was some little article about Ornette Coleman. And there was an article about talking about his album free jazz and saying something like, Oh, oh you know, this is the craziest thing. Like, you know, it's so, you know, this was such a radical statement at the time. And I think something about how it was portrayed, like, uh, you know, I don't know. I was, I was like, well, I got to check that out because I'm into all this crazy metal and weird other stuff, and I want to hear the most crazy kind of jazz. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like, I think I was more attracted to that idea that I was to just hearing like kind of blue or something like that, which yeah. you know later I would come around to, but it wasn't my entry point. And you know, I remember getting that album Free Jazz by Ornette Coleman and, and enjoying it, 
you know, maybe not really being able to make much of it. But then I got Shape of Jazz to Come by Ornette. And that one instantly, I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm into this. Like that was like, you know, I, I you know, it was a, the, the composition, you know, the same, like what I said with metal, the compositions mm. were just sort of instantly memorable. Yeah. Um, obviously, you know, Ornette's sound on the horn was just like, I, I really liked that just like with my favorite metal musicians, like the, my favorite jazz musicians had these like really strong personalities. I could be like, oh, you know, instantly, like I love the way Ornette's saxophone sounds. I, you know, and, and, and again, I didn't have a lot to compare it to. I don't even think I'd heard Charlie Parker at the time. But, you know, I'm like, I love that. I love the way that Charlie Hayden's bass sounds, and Don Cherry's trumpet, and Billy Higgins' drums. And mm -hmm. I would say I love Pete Sandoval's drums, or I love Trey Azathoth's guitar. Side. yeah. Just, just like, you know, I wasn't, I, you know, it's like I, I was very into, like, this idea of, like, distinct bands that had a real sound and a combination of musicians in the same, you know, same way, you know, like, I could be like, oh, I love Lars Ulrich's drumming, and, you know, I love uh, the way Kirk Hammett solos or something like that. You know, it's just like, I liked that these bands with real strong personalities, and that Ornette mm. Coleman Quartet is a band with a really strong personality. I, I, don't, I don't think I really was thinking about it as like, you know, obviously I knew it was a different, coming from a different place or whatever, but I wasn't like, I was just like, something opened up with that one, you know what I mean, with that yeah. record. And like then, I think, then um, I went to college and, my second year of college, I, I started attending Columbia University in New York, and there's like a there's a sort of a world renowned jazz radio station at Columbia, um, WKCR, which is you know still going, still thriving, great. You know, it, it has a long history stretching back to I don't want to misstate, but I believe the '40s, uh, basically, where they would either you know record you know, great jazz musicians like offsite and broadcast those, or they would have musicians to the station to do interviews or they would, um, you know, it was just like a hub of jazz activity in New York. And there's this gentleman, Phil Schaap, who's sort of like the world's foremost Charlie Parker expert. So mm -hmm. playing Charlie Parker on the radio every, literally every weekday morning for like 35, 40 years. And so it was, you know, as I got into school and kind of got acclimated, I, I heard about the station and, and I somehow I, you know, I started interning and I eventually got a show on the station. And, you know, that was a real, that was basically where all the jazz stuff just kind of like exploded for me. You know, they had this, yeah. this last story that I would be in there late at night and I, you know, I could check out, you could check out like five records at a time and I would just go through alphabetically and just go crazy with that stuff. You know, I was basically just teaching myself about, anything yeah. that I was interested in. And, and basically it was really just a thing of like, like with that Ornette record, it was like finding something that I liked, finding a music, you know, and jazz as opposed to metal. The great thing about jazz is you, you find one name you like and you can just follow that person. Yeah. So I've been saying that too. Yeah. It's like a big universe, yeah. isn't it? Exactly. It's yeah. just like, it's just like a big, uh, you know, Tony Williams, the drummer was somebody who I can't remember where I, what record I would have first heard him on. You know, Andrew Hill's album Point of Departure was a big one. I, I don't remember what got me onto these Blue Note records, but I, something something put me on. At the time, I think they were reissuing a lot of them. You go to the record store, they have these Rudy Van Gelder editions of these Blue Note albums. And I remember seeing that Andrew Hill one and being sort of intrigued by it. And that record, I know a friend had showed me like Eric Dolphy's Out to Lunch. That's probably where I first heard Tony Williams, was okay. from the Eric Dolphy thing. And so I was... I was like, okay, this Tony Williams guy is like, I got to get everything. Like, I, I have to hear, you know, I, I got to, you know, this this is freaking me out. Like, I've never heard anyone play drums like this. 
you know, yeah. certainly that's what happened with Tony, Eric Dolphy, the same, you know, uh, the bass player, Richard Davis is also on that record. Um, you know, then obviously, you know, train, like, I can't remember where the first one I would have heard. I mean, Elvin, you know, McCoy Tyner, or, uh, Bobby Hutcherson. I mean, that, that whole like sort of early to sixties, like blue note impulse, um, universe, like when all the player, you know, Joe Henderson, like, I feel like once you kind of fall down that hole, it's, it just opens up because there's yes. like hundreds of albums, you know, Jackie McLean, um, Gratian Monker the third, the trombone player. And I had friends who were, in, who, who were sort of ahead of me in this stuff and, and pointing things out to me, but like through the station, through friends, like I just like, I, 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 I was just kind of obsessively searching through this stuff. And, and, and you know, it wasn't like I wasn't into metal at that time. I was totally, totally into metal. I was still following bands like Morbid Angel and, but I was, most of my kind of like free listening time was being spent kind of like just self-educating about jazz, you know, yeah. and I had a show, so I got, you know, I got the chance to like interview people on my show, I, you know, because of the stature of WKCR, you know, I could go see a musician like Steve Lacey, I remember seeing Steve Lacey play and literally going up to him after the show and saying, can, can I on my show, and he did, uh, I did a show, interviewed um, Rashid Ali, Coltrane's last drummer on my show, I interviewed. Um, so you had a you had a radio show, is that right? Yeah, I had like a I had I had a I had a weekly show that was really early in the morning where I would just play stuff, but then there was these there were these Wednesday and Sunday slots where you could do interviews and you kind of sign up for them. And so I would just be out in the city, kind of going to shows, and I would meet someone, you know, either a younger musician or older one. And, you know, jazz musicians, you know, because of the size of the audience, they tend to be pretty approachable. I mean, it's like you can kind of just like go up to them after the show, and and you know. And I was just a college kid who was very, you know, you know, as, as in, you know, interested in trying to do my best to learn about it. And, you know, I ended up getting a lot of these fairly like heavy-duty musicians on my show. This guy, Gratian Monker the Third. Who are you familiar with him? I'm not, but tell me about him. Well, he he's a he was a trombone player who, who made a couple records under his own. He was on Jackie McLean's Blue Note Records. Um, he just made these this one, particularly this one incredible Blue Note album on Arizona called Evolution from like 1963. The lineup is insane. It's like uh, Jackie McLean, Lee Morgan, um, Bobby Hutcherson, Tony Williams, I think Bob Cranshaw is the bass player. But he just wrote these really beautiful kind of like unusual uh, kind of progressive like post-bop, you know, verging onto avant-garde. Yeah jazz and, and you know, he made this incredible record and I didn't know where he was and somebody told me he was still kind of around the city and he came on and we did like a three hour show kind of tracing his old career and I was like you know again just like a college kid and this guy was like in his you know he had recorded in the 60s and here we were it was like early 2000s and you know I, I don't know how many people were going around to him asking him about this stuff but you know that, that was happening a lot you know what I mean because it was like you know, a lot of these figures were fairly obscure at that time. They weren't really performing. Mm -hmm. You know, so so yeah, the, the radio show just like opened up the possibility of doing these interviews. And you know, through the you know, as a result of the interviewing, like the writing sort of started. I was doing like you know, I, I started doing reviews for different websites. Even in college, I was doing show reviews and things like that, which you know, in my normal course of like going out to shows and things. So it was like then you know, by that time, it was like. I had all this metal stuff from my youth and this, you know, kind of budding jazz, you know, interest. And, and it was just kind of like, 
one didn't replace the other. They were just together. Yes. Yeah. It's like, like, like I think in my early day, my, like in my adolescence, I remember going through these phases where it'd be like, I like metal now or I like punk now, but over time, it's just like you realize you just add to it. You know, yes. there's no reason to like throw out the other one just because you like the one. You could just, you know, and, and, and it almost like enriches the whole picture because you can just, uh, you can like it all and you can draw parallels or not. You know, sometimes there are parallels to be drawn, sometimes there aren't. But again, like I think both jazz and metal, you know, you mentioned it was unusual. I mean, to be honest, it's like they're both, they're both types of music that are just built around bands. Do you know what I mean? Like as mu especially as music grows more and more electronic oriented and everything like that. Mm. Like it's like jazz and metal are kind of almost like old fashioned in the sense that it's just you know it's it's about the musician. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I understand your point completely just, there because that's how I relate to it. Four, three, four, five musicians finding a sound, and you know, like I said, there's there's these, there's there's obviously you know very deep differences in the sense that one is like an African American art form, one is you know mostly not. And, you know, just stylistically, they're so different and, and the sound of it and everything else. But, but in the end, it's like you're just searching for the sound of a certain band, for the sound of a certain musician. You know, with jazz, you have that thing where you can follow them through different bands. But, you know, it's just like you're looking for the, the great band in either music. And it's not quite the same as if you're, you know, if you're into pop, you know, you're not really looking for a band. You're looking for a, a song that's catchy or you're looking for a singer's voice you know what i mean like and, and also there are these styles that were this kind of like virtuosity flourishes you know the, the being really damn good at your instrument is rewarded and and sort of almost expected and also having a style on your instrument is you know obviously there's a whole wing of jazz or metal too where it's more athletic kind of shredding for the sake of shredding or just kind of like uh, it can, you know, either the styles converge into like empty virtuosity, but mm -hmm. at its best, they're like virtuosity in the service of like a sound. Do you know what I mean? Like I was writing about that band Gorguts the other day. Like they're sort of like a perfect yeah, I read example. That. Yeah, that was a good one. A good editorial. Yeah. yeah, like they're they're sort of like a perfect example of just like finding a sound. You know what I mean? It's just like where else could have, you know, where else could that happen? But in like underground metal for, you know. For, for something that weird to just come about. It's, it, like, I feel like both this kind of music, it's like, because they're not, you know, and again, Metallica aside or, or, or Pantera aside, for the most part, a lot of this underground stuff, it's not going to make you rich. Like people are getting into it for the passion and, you know, jazz doesn't make you rich either. I mean, it's, it's, it's like, you know, it's driven by passion. They've got like a small dedicated audience. It's like a band based music, you know, based around like virtuosity and, you know, the audience really knows their stuff and you can't sort of like, you know, you can't bullshit an audience in either style. You got to just get up on stage and just kind of like bring it. And I think that, you know, that in that sense, the environment at a jazz show or a metal show is not that different because everyone there is really serious. You know, they show it differently. But I think that the attitude is the same. It's just like people are like, they're diehard and they don't, you know, and you can't, you can't lie to an audience, a jazz audience or a metal audience. You know what I mean? Yeah, they're very, they're a very schooled and educated audience on the music that they're listening to. That's that's what I think it is. You know, and yeah, yeah I, I just to draw another tangent, okay, and bring it back to Morbid Angel. I really enjoyed your piece that you wrote about Covenant, so the third Morbid Angel album. That I think you nailed it. By the way, I think you got it absolutely right. But 
on, you're writing for the Rolling Stone. It was actually, I don't, I, I used to subscribe to the Rolling Stone about 20 years ago, back in the print media days, of course. And look, one of the reasons I stopped subscribing to it, and correct me if I'm wrong, but they really had no focus on extreme metal and on heavy metal in general. It just sort of went right away. And you were the first writer under the masthead that I've come across that actually addresses it as an art form that's worthy of bringing it to an audience and talking about it. And this is a key point in an intellectual way, because I think that's the way you're able to do it. You're not talking about it in the, in the rah-rah sense. You're talking about why this stuff is good and why it meets it on an emotional level as well. So do you get a lot of, like, I'll, I'll re, sorry, I was going to ask one question. I'm going to, re, going to reframe it. How much pressure do you get from the Rolling Stone to, to write a certain way or do they just leave you be to just do what you think is right? Well, that's sort of a long process. I mean, like Rolling Stone historically has not been, you know, and again, I can't really speak for the entire history of the publication. I mean, I've only worked there for three years, but historically, heavy metal has not been Rolling Stone and heavy metal have not had like the most, you know, harmonious relationship over time. I mean, you know, Black Sabbath was was generally panned in the magazine, you know, that long ago. Um, but things started to change. Have started to change recently. There's a colleague of mine named Corey Grow, K O R Y G R O W who has been there uh, a few years longer than me. I think he got there in like, I'm not sure, a uh, few years before me. And he's been writing about metal there for a while. He has a background working at metal magazines like Revolver. And he brought a lot of that stuff to Rolling Stone. So there was kind of like a basis for it there when I got there. Also my prior editor named Brandon Geist, who, was, who had also worked at Revolver. They, they were kind of like, they, they had brought metal back into the regular rotation there. Uh, really fairly strongly and by the time I got there it was not unusual at all for us to be covering things like you know from Metallica to like Slipknot or whatever and so you know and and then a few years ago actually well maybe was it last year or the year before Corey and I put together we decided it was time to do this like definitive Rolling Stone greatest metal albums list. so we did a hundred greatest metal albums for Rolling Stone and kind of put that together jointly with a bunch of other writers and um that to me was kind of like planting the flag for like, okay, you know, maybe Rolling Stone hasn't been so kind to metal in the past, but, but here we are, we're saying like, this is now, let's try to like take stock of the genre and like, you know, we, that our list, you know, covered everything from Sabbath all the way up to like, you know, Dark Throne. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, I think we put together a pretty like broad, fairly definitive list of, of, of metal, you know, going was Priest or Typo Negative or Pantera or, you know, Mormon Angel was on there or whatever. And in turn, but, but to answer your question, like, uh, you know, I, I'm, an, I'm an editor at Rolling Stone and perspective wise, you know, if I'm writing about something, like for the most part, nobody's really telling me what to, what to say. You, you know what I mean? Like, like, I mean, first of all, you know, it's not like somebody was uh, begging me to write that piece. I just, you know, knew the anniversary was coming up and I was like, and we had put it, we, there was a little bit of a precedent for it because I had put it on the metal list, you know, it was something in the, it was somewhere in the seventies of the greatest metal albums list. Personally for me, it's like my literal number one. So I wanted to just kind of like, you know, I wanted to say something Give it some about attention, it. Yeah. And, and, and I felt, and again, the reason, you know, there, there were other reasons that I felt like it was appropriate to write about for Rolling Stone. Like, I, I don't think I would write about the anniversary of, like, an immolation album for Rolling Stone or something. I think more of an angel. There, there's a few things. One, first major label death metal album. Two, it had a real moment there on Headbangers Ball, and it kind of had a almost weird popularity. 
They were on tour with bands like Black Sabbath and Motorhead the year after. And and lastly, I mean, as as I mentioned in the piece, they were literally signed by this guy Irving Azoff, who's like this music industry yes. mogul, who who which which you know all credit to uh, this book, this uh, Choosing Death book, which told that story. I mean, you know that that's you know I, I don't think the story of the signing had ever been told in such detail, but you know this idea that I mean you know. Again, the manager of the Eagles, you know, one of the, you know, Irving Azoff is like one of the most famous music industry figures of the last like 40 years. And that connection is crazy. You know, the fact that he like facilitated them to be able to make something that and I think that's again, that's what I was trying to kind of trying to convey in that piece. This idea of like, you know, all these bands were getting signed, but often like the album after they got signed, they would kind of streamline things or they yeah. would slow down or they, you know, and again. A lot of those records are great. Carcass Heartwork is, is probably Carcass's best record, uh, you know, in two Wolverine Blues, all this stuff. But it, it was it was almost always the bands were like taking it a little bit more into something that would be accessible, and sometimes for the better. But Morbid Angel, like, I really do feel like Covenant is a more is a harsher album than anything they had done before, both lyrically and the sound of it. Mm. And it's just it's just a violent sound. And, 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 you know, to have that album come out on a major label, I mean, it's kind of like, what was going on? How did that happen? You know? And so I think a lot of that was like, why I wanted to write about it too. Not just like, I love this record, but this is a really weird thing that's literally never going to happen again. Like, literally, it's not going to happen. You know, yes, like heavy, you know, these big, like five finger death punch or these huge bands that kind of have this extreme singing or, you know, maybe some, maybe Slipknot things like that have like blast beats and things like that. But I don't think anything's coming close to the level of just like, I mean, Morbid Angel is like, I listen, you know, listening to that album the other day, even it's like, it's harsh, you know, and, and it's hateful, you know, and, 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 you know, and, and like I mentioned, you know, you're kind of uncomfortable about some of the things that might be underlying that. I mean, there's, there's kind of a, what seems to be kind of like a Nazi thing going on with, with him using this term Untermensch. Uh, yeah, I didn't know that when you wrote that. I, I had to go back and I, I actually couldn't pick up where it was. So you, it wasn't in the liner notes as part of the lyrics, it's but you picked liner it. notes. He says it. You know, it, it's 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 in uh, it's in blood on my hands and and okay. You know, it's something like um, you know, he says something like human shit waste be gone from my earth. He says like human shit untermensch waste be gone from my earth. There's like he says it in there, but it's not in the lyrics. Do you think? And it's like, do you think he knew what he was saying? Now, there's a famous story that was printed in Metal Maniacs actually. So you might have read it where one of the editors there was going pretty strongly after Lemmy for his use of World War Two imagery. Yes, and sure. and this was in the late '90s, I think. So. God, you've got to yeah. cast their mind back, and I've certainly long given away my copies of Metal Maniacs. But Lemmy defended himself by saying, look, the bad guys always wore the best uniforms, and that's my attraction to it. And just to, to, to prove my point on that, this is talking about what Lemmy was saying, he made a comment that, that David bought, I don't know what, what it was, it might have been Mein Kampf or something like that onto a tour bus. Lemmy went and he gave it to Lemmy. Lemmy went and pissed on it and then handed it back to him. Do you remember reading that story in Metal Maniacs? No, but that's, that's I mean, yeah, and, and I mean, I don't remember that, but there there are other stories, too. I mean, I was kind of searching around for it. There's nothing definitive, but there was talk, too, about at the time, there were interviews at the time of the 
of when 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 Vincent left the band after Domination, like Trey had been talking about how Vin, he wasn't comfortable with Vincent's lyrical direction. Yes, I remember that one. Yeah. Sense of, and I read, you know, and again, this is this is completely just like hearsay on the internet, but but there's that song, um, uh, what is it, Dawn of the Angry from um, Domination, where he says like, you know, my finger on the trigger with what's so foreign in my sights. Apparently there was a lyric that he, apparently the lyric was originally white finger on the trigger, you know, oh, shit. And, yeah. and, if you, and if you listen, but again, cannot verify, have not heard Vincent comment on it. It's a rumor I've seen on message boards, but I do remember Trey talking about how he was taking the lyrics in some like uncomfortable directions. And then you see the next record, he just starts singing about like, you know, Necronomicon, Sumerian, you know, fantasy shit and took it completely the other direction. But if you if you listen to that song, Dawn of the Angry, or This Means War, I mean, both of them, they're very much talking about, like, you know, uh, this idea of, like, reclaiming some lost, like, birthright. You know, it does have this kind of, like, fascist overtone to it. And, and you know, again, I don't know. There, there are, you know, obviously some of those black metal bands have gotten more into that stuff where they've openly espoused those views and, and said those things in interviews. To my extent, David, to, sorry, to my knowledge, David Vincent has not done that. But it has to be acknowledged that he may have been flirting with that stuff at that time. You know, I, I don't think, you know, obviously there's nothing about it on, uh, there's nothing about it on the first two Morbid Angel albums or on uh, Illude, you know, uh, there, there's certainly nothing going on like that that I could detect. And like, you know, and I've also heard him allude to things like, oh, you know, I was a real asshole back then or I was, I was a very different person back then. So, yeah. You know, my suspicion is that he might have been kind of like, you know, he might have been heading that way ideologically and maybe kind of, you know, he dropped out of Morbid Angel and nobody really knew what he was up to for a long time. I, don't, I mean, I don't know. Did David Vincent make an album between Domination and uh, I guess he was maybe on a Jenna Torturers album? Or That's something? the one. I actually, I've actually had a conversation with him, a half an hour conversation with him. And he was very polite, I've got to say. And his manager's lovely, Suzanne, his wife's manager or girlfriend manager. Um, I didn't even, it wasn't on my radar to ask him any questions about that, but he just comes across as a guy now who's arrived at a point where he's comfortable in his own skin, he's standing within his yeah. own truth and he's just doing what he needs to do. So you probably bang on that he might have been flirting with some of that stuff back in the day because I certainly remember reading that article in Metal Maniacs. So, yeah. But he yeah. might have got uncomfortably close to it before he realised, hang on a sec, this is not the way to go down. Particularly, it's not about whether or not you're in the public eye or not, but especially if you're in the public eye and you're a musician, it's not the sort of attention you want to be bringing to yourself. Yeah, I, that's that's like my that's like sort of the feeling that I get from it, and you know, it it, it kind of makes me wonder now in the more recent reunion performances because they were performing "Blood on My Hands," and I'm wondering I want to go back and watch some of those live performances and see if he sang that word. Mm. Uh, you know, he could have easily just left it out. You know, maybe it was all the thing he did on the record. You know, but you know, it's it is there. It's if you look it up, it, you know, look it up. Like like he does say it. You know. Who knows what he meant by it, but I guess all I was trying to say was that record is not censored in any way in terms of its message or its emotional content or, or you know, it, it's, you know, it, it, it's just kind of incredible to think that that came out on a major label and it was, and it was just presented so straightforwardly, you know, not just the satanic stuff, but it's just like, it's so, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I, you hear it now, and I don't feel like it's it's lost any of its 
kind of insanity. It's not lost any of its potency, has it? It still rips out of the speakers at you, doesn't it? Right. Yeah. And I just, I, I, I almost can't believe that. And, and that's, I, you know, and again, maybe, you know, I think people who grew up in the 60s will say that about a lot of music from the 60s. I think that for me, you know, I happen to really come to, you know, maturity in like the early 90s. And some of that music still is really like my favorite music, you know, mm-hmm. like, you know, whether it's Pantera or Morbid Angel or Danzig or, or this craw band I was mentioning, you know, there's something about that time where some really like heavy, brutal stuff was going on. And also, another thing about it is that the production tended to be a lot like metal hadn't gotten into this Pro Tools era where everything yes. sounded so squashed yeah. and just kind of like people, for some reason, people thought it was a good idea to just like suck all the life out of these recordings, you know, which, yeah. which, I mean, these records sound dated instantly, whereas the records from the early 90s. Yeah, they're standing up. Like, listen to the Death albums, the Chuck Chaldina albums, and to me, they've got so much life in them. They're just, oh, yeah. they're just beautiful records to listen to. They're beautiful. The, the riffs are all time for me. I love Chuck Schuldina, by the way. I think he's probably about my favorite musician of all time. Yeah, um, without fanboying over him too much, I just listening to interviews with him, he's a very sensitive soul. He was trying to convey a lot of emotion through his music. And I think, you know, riffs like what he put in um, Crystal Mountain. Uh, you know, as a guitarist, you play along to that stuff there, and you just think, "What were you thinking when you're writing this beautifully melodic death metal?" Yeah. You're a guitar player. I'm a bass player and guitarist. Yeah, primarily a bassist. Yeah, but I do dabble in guitar. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, in, you know, for me, like symbolic is is is, is the one. I mean, I, that's probably probably my favorite. But yeah, those, those are those are yeah, those records sound incredible, and you know, I, I agree with you that like they're, you know. Things things went a weird direction after that in terms of like the sound of these of these extreme metal records. I, I don't really know what anybody was thinking with an album like Gateways to Annihilation, but for example, the Morbid the Morbid album, uh, great songs like one of the most ridiculous in a bad way drum sounds I've ever heard in my life. Like it yeah, sounds like it's, a typewriter. Yeah. Like I, I just I literally don't know how you could hear that and say. I'm okay with this coming out. Well, what about so, Heretic? What about what the hell went wrong with Heretic? Because the riffs are there on Heretic. The arrangements yeah. aren't, I must say. The riffs are definitely there. But someone, in my view, needed to sit Trey down and go, hang on a sec, mate. This is not the way you want to release an album. because it's, it's, Yeah, it's a weird one. Yeah. I, I like, in some ways, I like Heretic better than Gateways or Formulas yeah. because I think the songs are better, like you were saying. Definitely. Like, I think there's a... Yeah. There's a couple songs in there that I think are getting back to that catchiness. Like there's a song in Shrine by Grace, which to yep. me is sort of like the hit of that album. And like that almost sounds like it could have been on Domination or something. Like it's really catchy. And mm. and the songs on Formulas were not that catchy. I like I respect that album for its intensity, but it's it's not a very memorable album to me. Like it's kind of just a bunch of speed. Um, there's a few songs. Um, I can't remember if. if uh, if nothing is not is on that album, that that is nothing is not, and that is probably the heaviest track ever written in my view. That is just a yeah. Course. yeah. Oh. That's a that's a yeah awesome awesome song. Um, and you know it was interesting because the last time I saw them was in this new lineup with Steve Tucker, and they were playing only the Steve Tucker albums, and it was kind of cool because yes. you could you could just kind of check out that body of work unto itself, which you know I I, I appreciate, but I, I think of it as a different band. I think of it as kind of like Ronnie James Dio Sabbath or something, where it's like just it's literally just a different band. Have you, you had know? a conversation with Steve? 
No, I've never talked to anyone in Morbid Angel, honestly. I've tried, I sort of tried to get somebody together for this reunion, and like, you know, Trey was just not available. Trey wasn't doing any, he was no, only going to do, only do email interviews, which I, to me, I don't even, I no point. Yeah. No, I've, yeah. I've had, so I've had conversations with uh, David and with Steve as well, and Steve's yeah. a lovely guy, another fantastic bloke. Really cool. Yeah, and look, I, uh, you know, as is not the not necessarily the norm with journalists, I, 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 I didn't take him to task at all, and I did it in a very respectful manner, and I actually had to apologise for forming the opinion that I have, but I said, as an old fan, Kingdom's disdain isn't quite there for me, and I went through the reasons why, and he, yeah. didn't, he didn't disagree, but he said to me, look, it's disappointing to hear, because you're clearly an old fan, as you and I both are, you probably, you may have arrived at the same opinion I did, but the drum production on it is just awful, and <laughs> I, I can't it's, understand. It's, uh, I feel like all the Morbid Angel albums from, like, almost, if you, t okay, besides Altars and Covenant, Every Morbid Angel album has like a fucked up drum sound in some way. Like Blesser the Sick, it's so sampled and processed. It yeah, just sounds, isn't it? It sounds like and, a reverb has been put across all of the, the Tom and the Snake. Yeah, it's yeah. Sample. I, I think I think it's literally, they're just sampled. You know, it was like more sound recording was doing a lot of that at the time. It was considered like innovative, but it just ended up again, just kind of sucking all the life out of it. Domination, the drums sound fake. Uh, you know, Formulas has a kind of a cool... It, kind of a cool raw drum sound it's all right gateways again the snare drum sounds like a typewriter heretic i don't know what's going on it's a very <laughs> weird sound mix um you know and elude you know again i mean the the the, the sort of metal type tracks on that album sound pretty good you know mm. the, the 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 other ones are obviously you know not real drums anyway and kingdom's disdain yeah, for some reason they they just seem to have turned up the drums too loud or something. You know, they they, they and, and and they're just so overpowering and not in like a good way. They're just kind of like you know absurdly loud, and the guitars are kind of you know squashed as a result of it. I feel like yeah, they've, they've ripped the sound of the guitars, and I think it's ruined the album now that I've been listening to it for well over six months. And it's I actually find with headphones on. Actually, either whether you're listening to it and I've got an Apple Mac here, whether I'm listening to it out of the speaker in the Apple Mac or with headphones on, you can stay with it for about five to ten minutes before it becomes unbearable. Yeah, it's just too, it's it's like, it's harsh in a bad way. Whereas, like, Covenant is harsh in, like, a very warm yeah. way. Yeah. You know, Kingdom of Disdain, like, I like some of the songs and I enjoyed it when it came out, but I haven't really gone back to it. I don't know if that's the sound. I don't know if that's the songs. I think it's... I think it's a good album. I don't think it's a, a, a piece of crap. It's not a comeback think, album, that's for sure. You know what yeah. I mean? It's not well, got any of the hallmarks of that. But the thing is, like, I think that to some people who were, you know, and I know you said you had a different opinion of Illude, I think to, to people who were who were pissed off by Illude, it was almost <laughs> like an olive branch. You know what I mean? It was almost like they just had to make the, like, they had to make a very, like, normal album. Totally. You know it was a mean? reaction. Reaction to Illude. Yeah. 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 And like, I don't, it's a, it's a weird position for a band to be in to be doing that because it was funny to read the interviews around Illid because they were so unapologetic about it. Like David Vincent was kind of like basically like, you know, fuck you if you don't like it, you know, but, but then, and, and you never really knew what Trey thought about it because he didn't even do a lot of interviews around that record. He seemed to just kind of like go into hiding when they made it and then like kind of try to pretend it didn't exist or something. It was such a weird like that's really why I wanted. I wanted to do like a big story about them, and I, and I had proposed this to their management. You know, I hope that's not like revealing too much. But I was like in contact with their management like well before Kingdoms came out. Is that Gunter? Is that Gunter Ford you were talking to? Talking to him, and they, you know, they had they were working with some different PR at the time, 
And I was basically like, look, like I want to do this, the, the, the definitive story of like how they made this album that like was like almost universally maligned and they're coming back and they have this crazy saga. And I want to like really, you know, get into all this and like talk to, you know, I want to come down there and maybe visit them during the recording or something. All, and I sort of proposed this whole elaborate thing that just, you know, they, they, were, they were just, it just didn't, there was no real response or interest to it. You know, I did end up, you know, writing like a review of the record or something like that. But, I, and there were also pieces that came out. There was even like a decimal cover story. You could tell that all the trade quotes were just like from email interviews, you know. Mm. Um, and I and I still don't feel like we got the we got the full story on any of it. Like I don't know. We still don't know who's responsible for why Illud sounds the way it does. Well, I think we you know I, mean? I think we can guess that it's Trey, okay? Because yeah. he's clearly the captain in command of that ship, and. Right. I wasn't. I, I didn't go into too much detail on the album with David, apart from the fact that I said I liked it, and it's it's got a really. I reckon the guitar sound that they achieved on Destructos versus the Earth Attack, yeah. to me, that is the best sounding, the best sound that Trey's ever pulled. Now, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. it's a beautiful sound. It's broad. It's not bricked. It's. I'm listening to it on vinyl. The way it comes through my monster speaker system from from the uh, Denon vinyl player. It just fills up the room, and my kids and I, we do this little circle of death. <laughs> yeah. My daughters and I just go round in circles. And yeah, it's, I think it's very misunderstood, the album overall. I don't understand what they were doing with the industrial tracks. I don't know what the name of the, that, that's the opening cut is, you know, where it's just um, extreme. too extreme, yeah. is it? <laughs> that's odd. <laughs> that's unusual. But I think, I think the album. Be- You're right, you go. Well, well I mean, it, it's funny you mentioned like, Okay, because the thing is, even on some of the industrial tracks, the guitar is really cool. But what makes it so bad are, like, the lyrics are just horrendous, you know, and, and like, unacceptable. And, like, but but the weird thing is, like, some of the sort of more straightforward songs just sound like sort of like continuation of Domination or something like, uh, you know, Nevermore is a really good Morbid Angel song. Yeah, great. Existo Bulgare or whatever it's called, that one's really good. Um, there, there's a handful of, of good songs on it, and like one or two of these sort of industrially songs have cool elements. But I think like the it's so the presentation, the lyrics were just so cheesy. The you know, morbid thing. Yeah, right. Which again, like not the worst song in the world. Like kind of a catchy, like almost like singing at a soccer stadium, kind of like fist pumping <laughs> thing. But it was like. But they used to do that on like on like domination, and it wasn't so incredibly cheesy. Like just, I mean, like just incredibly, like you 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 really can't listen to that with a straight face, you know. And like Morbid Angel was never a silly band, you know what I mean? Like, you know, I think if if you're someone who's into Covenant, it's kind of hard to swallow that there's this band that's almost sounds like dorky, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like you know, and, and I think that's what, you know the lyrics and the, pre- and the kind of this presentation and this kind of like silliness of, you know, I know everyone made fun of that song radical or whatever, you know, I mean, it's pretty silly, you know, it, it, it's like, but, but I, you know, I think you might be more positive on the album than I am, but I do agree that that album is not total crap. Like there's, there's, there's moments, but it's a little bit confusing. I like the way it sounds. I can't remember the name of the producer, but I know they spent months getting the production right and getting the guitar sound right and the way it marries up with the drums. And I think Tim Young, Tim the Missile Young, is one of the greatest extreme metal drummers out there. Um, yeah, doesn't get anywhere near as much credit as what I think he needs to for his work on the album. 
he had a, the unfortunate position of making that album with him. You know what I mean? Like it's it's like I saw him play the Covenant anniversary tour and it sounded incredible. Yeah, I saw that too, actually. Yeah, I, I didn't see them. Um, I haven't seen this. I've never seen the Steve Tucker version of it, but the couple of times that they've toured here with yeah. David Vincent. So I saw them in 2009, I think it was, or 2008 yeah. when they toured. So they didn't have an album out. They were just doing a bit of a, let's go to the territories where we've got a fan base and play. Yeah. And they sounded unbelievable. And I was fortunate enough to see with Steve. Pete. Yeah, with Pete, exactly. And that was going to be my point. So I was actually so feel so blessed to be able to have seen Pete before he found God or whatever's happened. Yeah. Um, but then I saw them when they did the Covenant tour, when they played that front to back and then did a bit of a greatest hit set. And musically, I, I did miss seeing uh, Eric Rutan up there. I thought, um, yeah. uh, what's the other guitarist's name? Destructor. Sure. What, yeah, whatever <laughs> yeah. his real name is. What, what about that with heavy metal? I've never gotten into that with heavy metal, you know, the way they use their pseudonyms and the like. It's just use your real name. Who knows, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I saw them twice, and they were bloody good each time. And, and actually, the second time around, I, I had a spare ticket, so I brought along a drummer friend of mine who's not in any way, shape, or form into extreme metal. But he right. left that show going, holy shit, they're a fantastic band, really good band. And I said, exactly. yeah, yeah, they are. So I'm sort of at a point now where I'm thinking, God, what could have been? Because I think this version of Morbid Angel is very... I do like Steve Tucker, by the way. I, I don't know anything about the other two guys that are in the band at the moment, but they're more workmanlike. Whereas exactly. yeah. the David yeah. Vincent version of it was like the rock star version of a death metal band. Exactly. You yeah. Know? That's, so yeah, that's yeah, great way of putting it for sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that I think that they like I think that the Steve Tucker version of Morbid Angel is the is the version that to me kind of like okay to me the the classic lineup the Vincent Sandoval as a duck lineup like to me that they were they were leading death metal. To me, the Tucker version is kind of like sitting in the middle of death metal. Mm -hmm. It's 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 not like it like you can see from Kingdoms of Stain. Like to me, like yeah, it's a death metal album. It kind of you know, to be honest, it doesn't sound that different than. Did you ever hear this Warfather thing that he did? I, I made that point to him actually, Steve, when I spoke to him. I said, "There's parts of this album that sound a lot like Warfather." So you've had a lot to say here. So you picked up on that as well. I, I did. I, I and, and I honestly think that that Gray Eminence album, I think, it was the second one. Second exactly. Warfather album. That, that album I, was almost as good as uh, Kingdoms. It's like, probably like, better. Honestly, it, it, it might be better. Nobody really paid attention to it, but yeah, yeah. and it kind of was. Guy kind of had the, you know, unfortunately, it came out just before he rejoined Morbid. But yeah, but yeah like, and I think that's the thing, and I think that's what sort of bummed me out when I first heard Formulas when Vincent left the first time. Was like, oh shit, now they're just kind of like another death metal band. You know what I mean? Yeah. Whereas before they had been like, they had been like defining the genre and they were out ahead of it and then for some you know I, I remember being really bummed out that they did that thing on formulas where they had the um, high and the low vocals at the same time kind of like what Glenn Benton does you know yes. what I mean yep. like and I remember being like like Morbid Angel can't do this like that's a deicide thing and that's like a generic death metal thing and like why is why are the kings of death metal like now just like back into the into the pack with everybody else you know what I mean like yeah. like like and I feel that way about, you know, again, like, gateways, you know, all, all, you know, and again, like, it's not about Steve Tucker. I think Steve Tucker is very, very uh, talented, but I think he, it's almost like he's the guy that Trey calls when Trey just wants to, like, do something more. Yeah, he's workmanlike, and he, he doesn't have the charisma of, of David Vincent. And I, I made the same point when I had a chat to uh, 
Andreas Kisser from Sepultura about Derek who replaced Max, of course. Yeah. Max is so charismatic, you can't follow him. You almost can't yeah. step into his shoes. They're far Did too it? big to fill. So you've, you've just got to do yeah. your own thing up there. And I think Derek, in the, you know, God, he's been in Sepultura longer than Max was. But, yeah. you know, he's doing a wonderful job. But I think Steve is yet to, he's almost, even though he's probably in his early 50s or thereabouts at this point in time, late 40s or what have you, he's still yet to really sort of come into his own as Morbid Angel's frontman because remember he's come in and out of Morbid Angel three or four times. You know when yeah, Jared Anderson yeah. was in the band when they did that tour with Slayer? Yeah. Exactly. Pantera? Yeah, yeah. yeah, I, yeah I, th I think it's a strange thing. I think it's like, you know, I respect the guy. I definitely like, it, it was It was kind of a similar thing with, with Dio Sabbath, actually. Like I remember first getting into Sabbath, I, I, I did not accept the idea of Dio Sabbath. And then after a while, I was like, oh, shit, Dio Sabbath's incredible. You know, but 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 like just accepting it as its own thing, yeah. as a, almost a different band. I think that I have accepted, I have accepted Steve Tucker, Mormon Angel as its own thing, but it's never going to, I mean, I don't want to say never because maybe that will surprise me with the next couple, but right now it doesn't hold a candle to what I feel about the first four records, mm. you know, like I just think that as a body of work, like, like I said, it, it, a lot of it, it does come down to the charisma, like you're saying, but it also comes down to the songs, you know, again, first four Morbid albums, like there's literally not a song on those albums that I could not just look at the title and hear it in my head, all the riffs, you know, it's just there. I don't know if that's just cause I've listened to them more. But I just think they're better songs yeah. and there are songs. There's a hit and maybe one or two songs on formulas, one or two songs on gateways, one or two songs on Heretic that, that they get there. I don't know if there's anything particularly catchy on uh, Kingdoms. Like, like I mean, there's a couple, maybe the, the first song, I guess, but the main riff kind of sounds like just a ripoff of Rapture or something like that. Um, you know, I like the intensity of that new record. There's actually a really cool riff, the, the chorus riff of that song, D-A Dead or D-E-A-D yeah, or whatever. Yeah, D-E-A-D. I'm just going to look at it because there is one track on there that I think is has the potential to stand out, but it's crushed because of the production style. So just let me... Okay, here we go. No, Pillar's Crumbling, I think it is. That track has a very good vocal cadence in it, but it's buried in and amongst this awful production right, technique. I have to go back to that one. It's, it's been a little Yeah, have a listen to that one. It's killer. Yeah. I, sure. Because, you know, again, like, yeah, like, I like the record. I'm into it. I'm curious to see, I'm curious to see what, like, the future life of that band will be. Because, like you say, it's kind of time, like, you know, the idea of a reunion is out the window. Vincent's over there covering more of Angel songs with this other project. There's never going to be a reunion. Yeah. Pete's gone yeah. for good. So really, it's just like, how long is Trey going to keep this going? And is is Steve going to be his guy from now on? And these other two guys, like you say, are they going to like step out from behind this veil of anonymity and become like actual sort of like, you know, like even Rutan, who was kind of like a quote unquote side man, he was writing. He wrote. He was a writer was, too. That's right. On uh, combination, and some of his songs are some of my favorite songs on domination um like nothing but fear um but you know i, I think it'll be interesting to see if more angel like be, like if this version of it can really like stand on its own two feet and not just because you know the next record they make which i guess will be the l record or whatever like that's no longer going to be reacting to illu it's like now they've got like a blank slate and it's like what are they going to do with it do you know what i mean mm -hmm. yeah so just, I, I, i've just remembered something um I had a really nice interaction with Trey's mother online. 
she, cool, cool. Yeah, she reached out to me. I, I, to be honest with you, I, sorry to whoever whoever took the picture, but I actually used a photo that I took from Google Images for yeah, one of my yeah. podcast episodes from my, or one of my radio shows, and she found it sure. and said, I love that photo, can I have it? So she reached out to me and found it, and yeah. I said, look, no problem at all. You know, I didn't mention that I basically co-opted it or what have you because you know how it is on Python, but I sent it to her. But I also asked yeah. her to have a listen to my... I did a, a two-hour-long... Um, what would you call it? It was a radio show, so I talked about Trey's playing and why I love Trey's playing. And I oh, put, I gotta listen to that. You gotta send that to me. I'll send it to you. Yeah, yeah. It was it was it was early on when I, it was about a year ago or so that I did it. So it's not quite as flowy as what I'm doing right now. So it's great. It's a lot of rain around me, as I say. We're in the subtropics here in Queensland, so it's pissing down with rain at the moment. If you can hear that, but but um, yeah, she. Uh, I said, look, what did you think? I asked her to listen to this this podcast episode, and she had to listen to it. She goes. It was lovely, you know. You really represented Trey well, and it was just oh. a really nice interaction that I had with her. And I yeah. explained to Morbid yeah. Angels agent in Australia that I had that interaction, and uh, you know, he was he was thrilled that actually Trey's mother is so involved in his career still. I think it's lovely. Yeah, you know? yeah as, as a parent cool. myself, I think it's great. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I kind of got in that sense because I know that she had like she had uh, spoken out against Vincent's thing or something like that. Yeah, she. What did she say? She said. Um, Sorry, this is it's very just, lot of humidity just, here at the moment. Um, yeah, she said, David, how could you, in terms of the I am morbid thing, you know, uh, yeah. something about, she didn't say this directly, but it was like, you know, you're always writing on Trey's work or something like that. And uh, But she's clearly got Trey's back. And I, I, I like seeing that sort of stuff. As I say, I'm a parent, I've got two daughters, and I think it's important that parents maintain some sort of involvement in, in a child's life, even though... For sure, he's a child. He's an adult, <laughs> but yeah. he's got his back. She's got his back. And I also, I also think that you know, I also think that it is kind of a question mark of like, what is the validity of this "I am morbid" thing? I mean, you know, Trey. As far as we know, I don't know that David Vincent really wrote riffs for Morbid Angel. I could be wrong, but I don't. I mean, I don't as far as as far as I know, David Vincent has not written a death metal album without Trey ever. You're right. He, he, Correct. Yeah. Like even even in Terrorizer, like I think it was more like Jesse Pintado yeah. was writing that yeah. music. I think. I mean, like I so so is so, you know, I, I don't know that there's a classic Morbid Angel riff that's not written by Trey. You know, I, I thought the same thing actually when I saw Morbid Angel. Uh, um, I am Morbid out. And I didn't ask David this, but it was a, a copyright. Who has the who is allowed to perform this material now? I know. Well, there there are some situations with bands, and you might you might be able to bring some to mind now, but I can't. But where they can't perform certain songs from certain eras because they're not allowed to play them live. Yeah, I think that honestly, I mean, David Vincent would have co-writes on all those songs because he did write all the lyrics, lyrics. as far yeah. as you know, or most of the lyrics. So he he at least has co-writes. And other than that, I kind of you know, it's almost like they're just a cover band or something like that. So I, well, there's no new material, yeah. But, so I don't think there's any like you know yeah I don't think there's any like illegality about it but you know it, it is kind of a, a strange thing it's like you know is that band going to make a record are they just going to keep like you know i think i think basically what it is is that they seem to really i don't think they've played the u.s yet and it seems like they can just go all over the world and play the hits you know what i mean and and and, and you know I, I look if that if that tour came here i'd probably go see it just because mm. i want yeah, the like songs it's, yeah. it's be fun but Again, like, what is the long-term future of that? I mean, to me, it's probably just something David Benson does to pay the bills, which which is fine. Yeah, totally. You know? yeah. 
Well, he's got his but, outlaw but, country music these days, and I did talk to him about that. And I think that's the lane that he's going to be sticking to because, as as you well know, I mean, we to be honest, in Australia, we don't really understand it. We have our one country music festival in Tamworth in New South Wales, but the country music thing in the states is just a Goliath industry. It's enormous, yeah, and exactly. I think I think he's worked out that that's a lane for him to stick to and actually have a career beyond death metal. I mean, that's the question: Is he going to like like? Who are those fans? Like, are people who aren't into his death metal going to be into his country? And, like, how into his country are his death metal fans going to be? It's just kind of a weird thing. It's like, you know, as much of a fan of David Vincent as I am, if, if he made a full country album, I don't know. I'd want to hear it. Would I buy it? I don't really know. You know what I mean? Well, I bought like the um, single, the vinyl single, but it came warped, yes. so I couldn't listen to it. So I had to listen to it online on YouTube. And, look, it sounds okay, but you've got to get into country, and I don't. I don't like it at all. <laughs> country yeah. music at all so it's, it's hard it's you know i mean like like it, it just seems kind of like a generic like middle of the road example of it and it's kind of like playing on this gimmick of like the metal guy gone country but it's like you can only play that card for so long before you just kind of have to like make good country music you know what i mean so i guess it'll you know he's got you know he's got obviously his even his he's got a very deep voice like a distinctive voice and like you know more power to him i'm just kind of curious like what becomes of these guys. I think that's like a big question in like this extreme metal thing in general, of like what happens to these people? Because we're seeing the first generation of these people age. Like what happens to these musicians? You know, we've never seen yes. we've never seen a death metal band retire that's a really from, good point. from old age. You know, mm. even obituary is still out there just like completely kicking ass. Like they're one of the first, you know, um, you know, some of the bands have broken up, but but really, you know, a lot of these first generation bands are still Cannibal Corpse, you know, obviously only a couple original members there, but, you know, these guys have been in it for 30-something years. Like, what what happens in, like, another decade? You know what I mean? Like, will these musicians be doing it when they're 60, 65? Well, I think that they can. They're physically, I mean, I can't headbang. I'm 40 years of age, dead on 40 years of age. And I know that if I do that, I'll wake up the next morning and I can barely move. Right, right. Yeah, yeah no, I... <laughs> You know, so, so I, I think it's up in the air. It's like, it's like, are they going to change? You know, I don't think, you know, Trey seems like a diehard. I don't think Trey's going to start doing some other kind of music. I mean, to be honest, like, if, you know, I'd like to hear like a Trey solo guitar record. I'm with you on that. that. I'd love to see a Guitar Hero album from him because he should do yeah. it. Or just like, even just like an abstract experimental album, like like that Love of Lava stuff that he does. Like if he really developed that, like multi-tracked it, made it into some kind of like sound collage thing. Like it just seems like, it seems like there's so much potential there, but because but but he's such an like he's an artist who's just very locked into a genre, and I don't think he's got anyone around him who's ever gonna like you know he's been, like he's been with the same management for 25 years or you know it just seems like he's just kind of in a little insular world down there. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I agree. you know, so so uh, you know, but but I think it's it's sort of you know Pete's got this terrorizer thing. I'm I'm sort of just fascinated to see what happens with all these people. Like, are they gonna do any of those guys still have like really great music in them, you know, or was it just kind of like a time and a place and now it's kind of echoes of that or something like that? But it's cool that they're still making music. You know? Mate, I better wrap like, things up, and the reason why is I've got about three percent left of my Apple Mac out here before it dies. We could ramble about Morbid all day, I'm sure. You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast. My name's Andrew Mackay Smith, and that was my conversation with Mr. Hank Steamer, who is a senior music editor at the Rolling Stone. You can follow Hank on Twitter at Dark Forces Swing. I do encourage you to do that because he has a plethora of excellent writing for you to sink your teeth into. Thank you so much for listening.